My name is Lee Brasington. I live in Alameda. Um, I was a longtime student of the Venerable Ayakema. And what we're going to do today is take a look at the 21 practices that are given in the Satipatthana Sutta. And we will do, well, not all 21 practices. I mean, we've only got eight hours. Uh, but we'll do some of these practices. And most of the guided meditations that I'll teach you, I learned from Ayakema. So what else should I say about myself? I have a day job as a computer programmer. Uh, and it's really nice to be here again. This is such a great sangha. I appreciate this opportunity to share the Dharma with you. The Satipatthana Sutta occurs twice in the Pali Canon. It's the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, Dignikaya number 22, the Long Discourses, and the Plain Satipatthana Sutta in Majjhimanikaya number 10. They are identical except that the Maha version, Maha meaning greater, contains a detailed explanation of the Four Noble Truths. Now, in the Majjhima that same detailed explanation can be found in a different sutta, number 141. So pretty much all of the information is in both collections. And there are very good translations of both of those collections, the Digha by Maurice Walsh. This is the first edition. You're probably familiar with the hardback. And the Majjhima by Bhikkhu Bodhi. This book, entitled Satipatthana by the Venerable Analayo, is an extraordinarily good commentary on the Satipatthana Sutta, and it also has a very excellent translation. There's another very good book on the Satipatthana Sutta uh, called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. Uh, it's an older book but it's also quite an interesting book to read. But it, my recommendation, if you're going to read a book, get the blue one by Analayo. This is, this is really brilliant. So the Satipatthana Sutta was given in the land of the Kurus, which is identified today as the area around Delhi, and it was given to a group of monks. Now, what the Satipatthana Sutta covers are meditation practices. So this is a sutta given to people who were serious about their meditation. And then what follows are the four foundations of mindfulness. The word satipatthana, sati, we translate as mindfulness. It originally meant something like remember or memory. Okay, so mindfulness includes memory. Basically, you could think of mindfulness as remembering to be here now, to be in the present with what's actually happening. And then patana is probably a contraction of upatana. The commentaries give a number of possibilities of what the word actually means. We usually find it, find it translated as uh, foundations or frames of reference. It's four categories of things to be mindful. And these four categories are the body, the vedna. Vedna is usually translated as feelings, but it doesn't mean emotions. It means your initial reaction to a sense impression. 
pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Emotions would be in the third category, the third foundation, which is citta, and perhaps best translated in this context as mind states. And so your emotional state would be your mind state. And then the fourth foundation, dhammas. Dhammas, <laughs> dhamma is a word that has many meanings in different contexts. I think probably in the Satipatthana Sutta, the best translation would be phenomena. So phenomena that happen and their relation to the teachings of the Buddha in particular. And the phenomena that happen are most of what's given are phenomena that happen in your mind. Not all of them, but most of them. So what I want to do is go through the practices that are given. And the first practice is mindfulness of breathing. We actually were just doing that. All right. This is sort of the beginning practice that is taught in the Vipassana tradition. The classic sutta on mindfulness of breathing is in the Middle Link Sayings, and it's Majjhima Nikaya number 118. And in that sutta, there are 16 steps that are given for mindfulness of breathing. But in the Satipatthana Sutta, only the first four steps are given. The first foundation of mindfulness is the body, and the first four steps of mindfulness of breathing pertain to the body. And I'll read you what the Buddha had to say. And how does one abide contemplating the body as a body? Now, that's an idiom, the body as a body. How does one abide contemplating the body as a foundation of mindfulness? Here, having gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty place, one sits down cross-legged, holds one's body erect, and establishes mindfulness before oneself. Okay, so you want to go to a secluded place, the forest, the root of a tree, an empty place. A place where there's not anything else going on. It's probably not a good thing to do uh, in a busy place like a mall or something like that. I mean, yeah, you can meditate in a mall, but if you want to get serious, go to some place where you won't be disturbed, is what the Buddha is saying here. This counts as an empty place. There's nothing else going on here but meditation. Sits down cross-legged. If you can sit cross-legged, that's a great way to meditate because it provides you with a nice, stable way to sit. If you've got physical problems where sitting cross-legged produces a lot of unpleasantness in your physical being, it's not such a great way to sit. Uh, if you're you know, really into examining your mind's reaction to unpleasant sense phenomena, then that can be useful. But in general, you want to sit in a way that gives you a nice, stable way to sit that isn't painful. So a chair will work just fine. Holds one's body erect. So you want to sit up. You want to get so the air is moving nicely. If you're doing mindfulness of breathing, that's going to be very helpful. But you want an, an upright posture because that will bring some alertness to your mind, which will make the meditation go better. And then one establishes mindfulness before oneself. Again, this is an idiom. What it means is one puts one's attention on the meditation object, which in this case is the breath. 
Mindfully one breathes in, mindfully one breathes out. And then here come the four steps. Mindfully one, uh, breathing in a long breath, one knows that one is breathing in a long breath. And breathing out a long breath, one knows that one is breathing out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, one knows that one is breathing in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, one knows that one is breathing out a short breath. Okay, so the first two steps are pretty simple. Pay attention to the lengths of the breaths. And simply notice, is this breath longer than average or shorter than average? Now, there are a number of alternative ways to do that that have been taught. Okay, is this breath a shallow breath or a deep breath? Okay, various things. Anything to get you engaged at looking at the physical aspects of the breath and how it varies from average. The third thing. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in conscious of the whole body. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out conscious of the whole body. Now, this third one has a lot of different opinions as to what it means. In the Vasudhimaga, which is a commentary from about a thousand years after the Buddha's passing, it says the body that's referred to is the body of breath. Not your physical body, but the whole body of breath. Like we speak of a body of water, you know, encompassing all the water, not just the water up to the shore, the whole body of water. So the body of breath. So one breathes in and is aware of the breath in the beginning, the middle, and the end of the in-breath, the beginning, middle, end of the out-breath. All right, the entire breathing in and out. One interpretation. Another, actually more literal interpretation is that one is aware of the breath as it comes into the body all the way down into the lungs and then follows the breath as it comes out. All right, so really noticing the breathing in and out and how it's affecting the whole body, really paying attention to where it goes and what's changing. So you maybe at first notice it in the nostrils and then the chest swelling and the belly moving. Right, and then everything reversing as it goes out. So your attention's moving in and out. This particular method is useful for insight, but it's not so useful for concentration because it's so active with your attention moving in and out. And breath meditation can be used for both concentration practice and for insight practice. But it depends on how you're using it, whether it's going to be effective for concentration practice. And taking it as watching the breath coming in and out isn't going to be as concentrating as, say, sitting at one place like the nostrils and observe everything that's happening there. Now, a third interpretation, and this one comes from Ajahn Buddhadasa and his translator Santikaro, is that one is to observe the effect of the breathing on the body. Notice how your body is reacting to the longer breaths and the shorter breaths. Okay? Which ones are, which breaths are agitating? Which breaths are soothing? Etc. So, you're noticing the breath, and you've also got a, a sort of a broader vision of noticing the reaction of your physical being to the various types of breathing that you're experiencing. 
Now, my personal opinion, this third interpretation makes more sense, especially in light of the fourth one, which is, one trains oneself thinking, I will breathe in, calming the bodily process. One trains oneself thinking, I will breathe out, calming the bodily process. So, taking this third interpretation, what we have is, you pay attention to the different types of breathing in the first two steps, long and short, deep or shallow, however it varies. In the third, you notice the effects on the body. And then in the fourth, you, you don't control the breath, but you intend to let the breath settle into the type of breathing that has a calming effect on the body. All right. So if you notice that it's the long, deep breaths that really calm you down, you let your breath go into the long, deep breathing and let your body get nice and calm. Okay. So these four steps involve the breath and its effect on the body, and so it's given under the first foundation of mindfulness. Now we have a simile that's given. Just as a skilled turner or his apprentice in making a long turn knows that he is making a long turn, or in making a short turn knows that he's making a short turn. So too, in breathing in a long breath, one knows that one is breathing in a long breath, etc. So the picture we have is somebody working at a lathe, right? Okay, and so he's making a long turn, or he's making a short turn. You got to pay attention if you're working at a lathe. Right? You can't be watching the Super Bowl up there, right? You know, you're going to make a mess, right? The same sort of intense paying attention that is done when you're working with power tools needs to be done when you're working with the breath. Right? A really dedicated focus on what's going on. So, that's the first foundation of mindfulness first practice, mindfulness of breathing. Are there any questions or comments? It's Thomas Jefferson. Tan Jeff's interpretation is the second one, that one follows the breath in and sees what's going on throughout the body and follows it back out. So he has the more uh, active, moving attention, right? which is a very good insight practice. Other questions on mindfulness of breathing? The second one, you're actually following the breath with each breath. Okay, so you're really following it in and out. The third, you're, you're following the breath at one place, such as the nostrils, and then occasionally you look to see what's going on with the body, and then you're back to the nostrils. Okay, so most of your attention, most of the time, is going to be in one spot, on the nostrils perhaps, or on the belly. But then occasionally you open up to see what's happened and then back to your focus as opposed to continually moving your focus. Let's use, excuse me, let's use the microphone from now on for questions so that everyone can hear them. And they get recorded as well. Okay. Anyone else have questions on? Yes. Um, 
Could you repeat the first, the first one? Repeated the second and third. Could you repeat the first one? <laughs> the first one is the interpretation found in the Visuddhimagga, which is that the body refers to the body of breath, and so that you should know all the aspects of the breath. The beginning of the in-breath, the middle of the in-breath, the end of the in-breath, the gap in between, the beginning of the out-breath, the middle of the out-breath, the end of the out-breath, the little bit bigger gap in between. So you're really paying attention to it. You can actually do that first one in association with either the second or the third. All right? Uh, It's just that the interpretation is given in the Visuddhimagga that that's what you do is simply notice all the pieces of the breath without referring to the rest of the body. So, basically, the first three things are observations to to help you with the fourth part, which is the calming aspect. Correct. So it's the noting of whether a long breath or a short breath or shallow or deep produces calm in exactly. the body. And, uh, okay. and then allowing, rather than forcing, the breathing to go into the calm producing type of breathing. Right. When you are going from a long breath or a deep breath to a shallow breath and you get into this calm state, your breath is naturally very shallow. What is happening physiologically to cause that? I think what's happening physiologically basically is you don't need much air. You're sitting there very quiet. It's not as though you're doing any sort of physical activity at all. You've gotten just in a very shallow place. And even your mental activity has slowed down, right? If you're really distracted and you're having that argument with your boss again, or you're replaying the Super Bowl that's going to happen tomorrow in your mind even before it happens, or whatever your distraction is, the breath doesn't get shallow. Because you've got all this mental activity going on. But when everything, the mind and the body, slow down like that, you don't need so much oxygen. And so your body responds by calming down. And I think that's physiologically what's going on. It's just simply the lack of a need for oxygen. Sometimes I find that the trying to pay attention to middle, beginning, middle, end, and looking to see what else is happening in the body distracts me from the breath. Mm-hmm. And then I get confused, and then I start thinking. So I'm not sure how to, if I'm trying to be doing this kind of approach to my meditation, I mean, in, in some meditation set, settings, I understand, okay, I'm distracted, let's drop it, or... Let's explore that and find out why that's happening. But if I'm trying to do this sort of mm-hmm. Satipatthana one, what, how do you handle that kind of distraction then? 
if what you're doing seems too complex and leads to distractions, simplify. All right? So just hang out with beginning, end. All right? Just whatever is there. Um, it's true, if you're working really hard at beginning, middle, end, you're going to be generating a very, very focused awareness that doesn't really have the capacity to notice what else is going on. Right? So if you really want to notice the, you know, what's happening in your body, perhaps you don't want to work so hard on getting all the nuances. You know, not the beginning of the beginning and the middle of the beginning and the end of the beginning and the beginning of the, I mean, you can get so caught up in trying to see all the pieces that yes, you can't see all those pieces and open up as well. So in that case, back off a bit on the intensity of the beginning, middle, end stuff so that you have a, a bit more of awareness. If that still leads to distractions, then yeah, just forget about what's going with the body and let the mind settle in to the breath and get yourself concentrated and then back off a bit. Once you've got a certain amount of concentration built up, whether it be from doing the breath or any other practice, you can back it off slightly. The whatever you were doing to make yourself so focused, you can back off the doing of that and your concentration will stay quite strong. So perhaps at first you'll be doing beginning, middle, end and really getting the concentration going and just let it settle into that and then open up a little bit to see what's going on and then back to the beginning, middle, end. You'll be less likely to get concentrated. But anytime the general thing is if what if the practice you're trying to do seems like it's not working because you it leads to you know wandering off and so forth, see if you can simplify it. Right? Can you skip the first two? It's probably good when you're first getting settled to really get in there and start noticing the breath. When you first sit down, particularly if you've just come from the uh, unreal world out there, if you're trying to aim for beginning, middle, end, you don't have the concentration to start with. So just examine the breath itself. And it may be that you don't particularly think about is this long, is this short, is this deep, is this shallow. But you're really trying to examine the breath as it is to get yourself settled in. And then try and go for the, the more particular details of the effect on the body or following it in or looking at the beginning, middle, end, things like that. So just sit down and be with the breath. And one of the things that you can do to help you be with the breath is notice the links. Yeah, I hesitate to say it's okay to skip some of the steps that the Buddha suggested. I mean, after all, he's enlightened and I'm just a hippie computer programmer, so. Can you repeat the steps again? Just the, is it the first one following the short? Or like can Long, in and out. Short, in and out. The whole body of breath, in and out. Whatever interpretation you want with that. And then calming the bodily process as you breathe in and out. 
Okay, I think I'm going to move on. We can come back if you have some other questions that come up. We'll cover a couple more of these things before we take a break. The second practice that's given is the four postures. Again, when walking, one knows that one is walking. When standing, one knows that one is standing. When sitting, one knows that one is sitting. When lying down, one knows that one is lying down. In whatever way one's body is disposed, one knows that is how it is. All right, you can do this practice right now. Recognize the fact that you're sitting. Now, this isn't a particularly good practice to do, say, for 45 minutes, right? Okay, sitting. Yep, still sitting. All right. But you should at least know what posture you're in, right? When you're standing up, know that you're standing up. If you're walking someplace, be aware of the fact that you're walking someplace. Now, after each of these practices, there's what's referred to, at least by Analayo, as a refrain. It's after the first one, the breath, and it's after this one. I'll read you what it says. So one abides contemplating the body as body internally, abides contemplating the body as body externally, abides contemplating the body as body both internally and externally. Now, there's some discussion about what the internal and external means, but what I think most likely it means is internally is your body and externally is other bodies. Right? So you can become aware that you're sitting and you can also glance around the room and notice that other people are sitting. Right? And that everybody's sitting slightly differently. Right? There's lots of different ways to sit, so you can... You know, see, but there's a commonality to sitting as well. And the same thing with standing and walking, so you can notice other people as well doing these things. For mindfulness of breathing, you're breathing in and out, and other people are breathing in and out. What this means is that if you're sitting next to that guy that breathes really loud, you don't have to get upset. Just follow his breath instead of yours. It works fine. You know, just listen to his breath and follow it in and out. Right? It's a lot more pleasant than getting mad because he's breathing too loud. It'll get you just as concentrated. One abides contemplating arising phenomena in the body. One abides contemplating vanishing phenomena in the body. One abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in the body. Now, this is the key thing for all of these practices. Remember the Buddha's teachings on three characteristics of all phenomena, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, coreless. The impermanence or changeable nature of things is an incredibly important teaching and an incredibly important thing to notice. In fact, the Buddha said it would be better to live a life of a single day noticing the rising and passing of phenomena than to live for a century and not notice that. Okay? So, these practices all can be very useful for helping you notice the arising and passing nature of things. So, with these four postures, you should always be aware of the transition from one posture to another. 
when I give you a break and you stand up to go to the toilet, right? Notice the ceasing of sitting and the arising of standing. Then notice the ceasing of standing and the arising of walking, right? Every time you change posture, you should notice the ceasing of the previous posture and the arising of the new posture. Right? You can do this all day long. We change postures quite frequently during the day. I mean, even if you sit at a desk all day long, you don't sit there for eight hours. You don't come in, sit down, and sit for eight hours. You get up, you go talk to people, you get some coffee, you go to the toilet, you go to lunch. Right? Can you notice all of the transitions that are taking place in your postures there? So, internally, externally, arising and passing. Thus, mindfulness, there is body, is present in one just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that is how one abides contemplating body as body. Now, in the translation by Maurice Walsh and also in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, it says, or else mindfulness, there is body, is present. That always seemed kind of weird to me, you know. All this elaborate on instructions and then internal, external, arising and ceasing. Or, but in Adelio's book he says the translations are wrong and it should be a thus rather than or. So you do this practice and thus mindfulness is established to the extent necessary for mindfulness and awareness. For knowledge and awareness. Okay? So you do these practices to the extent that you are very aware of what's going on and you can learn from them. Right? There's a chance for the insights to arise. It's not about perfecting the fact that your mind never strays from beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end. Right? It's about getting it deep enough so that you can be aware of what's going on and learn from it. Right? So these are insight practices that are being given rather than concentration practices. So any question on the four postures or on the refrain of internal, external, rising, passing? I've never thought or heard um, of interpreting the in, internal external as, you know, mine and other, other like other people. Mm-hmm. So um, that's I've always thought of it. I, this is sort of a comment, not a question. Maybe it's a question, but I've always thought of it as um, different um, depths of. My own body, so the internal would like be a, a deeper internal part, you know. Like I even think of like the marrow of the bone, you know, mm-hmm. to be physical about it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and and I guess um, you know, in the in the yoga studies, they talk about different layers of the body mm-hmm. out to the auras. I mean, not that this has to do with that exactly, but that's how I think of it, is more that sort of really deep internal to more 
what is on the surface of my body, say for the external. Right. And there are people, you know, commentators from many centuries ago that agree with you exactly. And others that say it's self and other. And others that say it's the surface of the body and then under the skin of the body. All right. So the external is really the external part of the body. You know, it's on the skin and the internal is, you know, in the organs where you can feel things inside of you. So, as I said, there's a lot of discussion about it. The reason I like the interpretation of self and other is that when you start looking at the Buddha's discussion of particularly the arising and passing nature of things, he's telling you to look at it happening in your body and he's also telling you very explicitly to look at it happening all around you. Right, so he has this quite a bit of, of literature where he's pointing out that you know change happens outside of you and change happens inside of you. So looking out and looking in. And there are other instances in the canon where he's telling people to look out and also to look in. So taking that as sort of a guideline, I think the I personally think that's the correct interpretation. Uh, in Analayo's book, he talks about the various other interpretations that are there and gives references to who makes those interpretations and so forth. The interpretation that you have of near the surface or on the surface and then deeper inside is perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with it. All I would say is, okay, and throw in everybody else as well. Okay. Certainly it's helpful when you're examining something to examine not superficially. So if you look at your body and go, yeah, okay, the outside surface here changes when I stand up. Well, look inside, see how the muscles are, are changing. See what's going on there. What's your stomach like when you're walking versus when you're sitting down? Yeah, so those things can be very useful. But I would say broaden it out and take a look at other beings as well. Because when we get to some of these other practices, it definitely will be helpful to notice it in other people as well as in yourself. I don't know if it's a question. It's just something I'm thinking about. Um, this is foundations of mindfulness. And I always think of mindfulness as um, some, some level of awareness of what's going on here. And I think about the high distractibility level particularly of our culture. So when you start, to, I've never heard your interpretation either. And when you talk about that, I think, well, that seems like quite a challenge to not get really distracted with, wow, what's going on over here? Hmm, nice jacket. And, you know, just losing the real quality of mindfulness that I think we're trying to accomplish. So that's what I thought when I heard that. Right. This is not easy stuff to do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if... If the spiritual path were easy, we'd all gotten enlightened a long time ago. So, yeah. But what you've got to do is recognize what your capacity is. And it may be that when you're out in the culture, just remembering that you're standing up is about the best you can pull off. If you start looking around, yeah, you get totally distracted. So recognize the situations where, yeah, that's not really going to work. But it may be that, all right, you're standing in line at the grocery store. All right. What are you going to do with that time? You can read those trashy magazines. Right? You can buy some candy. Or you could just drop back and go, all right, I'm standing. I'm noticing I'm standing now. I can notice the person in front of me standing. 
and even the person behind me and the cashier, right? And look around at the people. I mean, you can drop into doing something like that at that point and probably not get terribly distracted, okay? But right, if you, if you make it a practice and you actually think, this is what I'm going to do, if you get distracted and you're you know wondering where she bought that coat, then notice, oh, I'm distracted here. Let's go back to looking at the standing and so forth. If you're, you know, walking down the street and you're searching for the correct address and so forth, yeah, you're not going to notice anything. You're, you've got too much going on. But when when you're in a, a position where you really have no responsibilities, such as standing in line, then it's possible to open up and be aware of when you're distracted and pull yourself back. Same as when you're sitting here doing doing vipassana, you can open up your hearing. Right, and then you can get distracted in trying to decide: is that a car? Is that a truck? Well, I think that's a Corvette. All right, but you know, you can pull yourself back and just notice the hearing. Same sort of thing happens. Yeah, they call it practice for a reason because we're not good at it yet, and we get lots of opportunities to practice. And one of the key things is recognizing this situation. I can do this much practice and have some chance of pulling it off. This situation, I'm just going to be lucky to remember that I'm standing. Other questions or comments about the postures or the refrain? I was really interested in the, the concept of internal and external, and I had mm-hmm. a, just because I don't really know, I was wondering the context, like, because most of the time my kind of operating idea is that a lot of the meditation is kind of in, introspective, mm-hmm. well, but when hearing that, it was kind of liberating, because sometimes I feel like the introspective actually leads me kind of into this world, or like where I'm so self-absorbed that I'm not actually in contact with the the world and I don't like I feel like it's almost myopic at times Mm -hmm. and I was wondering if there was emphasis you know with internal external because I kind of my interpretation throughout the years has been a focus on reflection and internal like focusing on inner processes but when you mention the external which I don't really hear a lot about or about like focusing on someone else's breathing is that something that's just a response to because our culture I kind of feel like because we don't do a lot of reflection or and what was in the larger context of all the, the Buddhist teachings, you know, the emphasis on en- internal versus external. Right. It, it's well, it varies quite a lot. I mean, the Buddha definitely said the entire of the universe, oh, monks can be found in this fathom long body. Right. So. Right here is everything you need to know if you go internally and you look carefully. But you also find a number of teachings where he's saying to relate to the beings around you. You also have to remember he comes from a culture that's very unlike Western culture where the self, the individual, is the most important entity in the culture. He came from a culture where the family unit would be a much more important, you know, 
aspect of the culture than the individual itself. I mean, if you go to Asia now, uh, you discover that it's not about individuals there, it's about families. Right? So the, the individual as king, the internal as most important, wasn't nearly the, the same you know, emphasis that we have here in the West. So you've got to back off a little bit there. But you can certainly find the Buddha at times stressing the importance of the individual. There's a discussion that he has with the king and the queen about who is the one who's most dear, right? And, you know, the king wants the queen to say the dearest person to her is the king. But of course not. The dearest person to the queen is the queen. Just like the dearest person to the king is the king. In fact, the dearest person to anyone is themselves. Right? So there is a lot of talking about the individual, the internal there. But, you know, you, you start looking at things like meta practice, where you give it to yourself and you also give it to all the various categories of beings and so forth. There's a lot of looking out as well. So I think what's necessary is to do both in balance. Something about the middle way, right? A balance between internal and external. So yeah, if you're just always looking inside, part of it is that uh, you're not going to see as clearly. Remember Robert Burns? Oh, if some power, the good gifty would give us the power to see ourselves as, other would, as others see us. Sometimes you can learn a lot more by looking at other people and how they behave than looking at yourself. Because when you look at yourself, of course, you're behaving really well. You're doing things very nicely. right? You've, you've got it down. You don't see some of the foolishness that you're doing. You look at somebody else in a similar situation, doing a similar thing that you do, and you can see how ridiculous it is. Right? So I think it's, it's definitely necessary to have a balance between the internal and the external. Now, it's true that if you're going to get really concentrated and quiet, you're probably have to gonna go inside. Right? It's really hard to get deeply concentrated, concentrating on the outside world. It's going to be much easier to go onto the inside. But to gain the insights, you've got to look both inside and outside. Okay, moving right along. The third practice given under mindfulness of the body is sometimes referred to as clear awareness. I much prefer to refer to it as mindfulness of daily activities. Again, when going forward or back, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. And looking forward or back, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In bending and stretching, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In carrying one's inner and outer robe and one's bowl, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In passing excrement or urine, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. In walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep and waking up, in speaking or staying silent, one is clearly aware of what one is doing. So this is mindfulness of all of your activities. 
basically, if you're on retreat, you know, you go on a retreat and you look at the schedule and they're going to be doing, wow, eight hours of meditation. Right? No. Actually, except when you're asleep, you're supposed to be doing practice all the time. Right? If you're eating, you should be paying attention to the eating. I mean, think about the way that we normally eat. Right? Fork, load, shovel, begin chewing, begin loading the fork, get the fork. As soon as you've got room, another one, right? You're actually spending more of your attention on getting the fork loaded than tasting the food. All right? This is not exactly healthy. What I suggest on retreat is that people load the fork, notice bringing it up, notice how you scrape the food off, put the fork down, let it go. Now start chewing. Notice what it's like. Notice the flavors. Notice how they change. Notice the textures. Notice how they change. Notice your tongue. It's doing some pretty amazing stuff in there. It's an animal in there. It's doing it all by itself. It's not under your conscious control. If you were to try and consciously make your tongue do that sort of stuff, you'd bite it, right? You just have to let it go and let it do its thing, right? See that. Know it. When your mouth is empty, pick up your fork, load, repeat. Okay? Pay attention. Learn what it's like to actually chew your food and how all that works. When you're getting dressed, be aware. All right. Everybody here is wearing pants. How many people know for certain whether they put the left leg in first or the right leg in first this morning? Know for certain. It's a pretty small number, right? Okay, with your shirt, which arm went in first? Pretty small number. You do this all the time. How come you don't know this? You habitually put the same one in all the time. In fact, if you put the other one in, it feels weird, right? And you don't even know which one it is. Pay attention when you get dressed, right? When you're brushing your teeth. Now, how many people know which hand they brush their teeth with? Okay. Turns out you don't actually brush your teeth with your hand. You brush your teeth with your arm, right? It's not your hand. You're not doing it. You brush your teeth with your arm. Did you know you brush your teeth with your arm? Think about it. Pay attention next time you brush your teeth. There are thousands of things that we do every day and we do them habitually and we don't know what's going on. So start noticing the things that you do habitually. Right? And see what's really going on there. Everything from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed. Alright? Which hand, which arm, which leg, all this sort of stuff. Which shoe do you put on first? When you start tying your shoe, is the first thing that the left lace goes over the right or the right lace over the left? It's literally hundreds and hundreds of things like this you could check out. Okay? That's what this is about. Now, for the monks it was much easier. Well, they didn't have shoes. They had three robes. Alright? But they were practicing all day long. So, okay, we got a lot more things we can play with here. Other things you can do with this. One that I particularly like is doorknobs. Can you be aware every time you encounter a doorknob? 
right? Can you feel the hardness of it? Or if it's just something you push against, can you feel the hardness of what you're pushing against? Can you're busy doing your life every time you encounter a doorknob, can you be mindful of that one thing? It seems that mindfulness of daily activities works best if you take something that you do regularly but not all the time and try and be mindful of that. The one that I like is doorknobs, doors. All right, and just try and drop into mindfulness every time you encounter a door. When you got that one down, pick something else. All right. Now you don't want to do something you do all the time. You know, I sit at a computer all day, so I'm punching buttons. Right? I'm just a button puncher. Right? So I don't want to try and be mindful of that because it's it's overwhelming. All right. So something that you do, you know, multiple times a day, but you're not doing a lot of. That's the type of thing to pick out and be mindful of. If it worked, there's a hallway that you walk down frequently. When you're walking down that hallway, just drop into being mindful of walking down that hallway. I wouldn't suggest doing the slow Vipassana walking, you know. <laughs> but you can walk at a normal speed and just be mindful that you're walking down this hallway. Every time you go down that hallway, all right, that's what you do. And just keep adding things in like that. Okay, so questions. Okay, so, um, yes, you don't do the slow Vipassana thing, but you're not just, I'm walking down the hallway, stop, I'm walking down the hallway. Isn't it that, to make this a, a work, I mean, uh, why do this, if you're not also paying attention to a, a little more depth to that, right? That it may be such a challenge to actually know that you're walking down that hallway that that may be all you can pull off. See, I'm sitting there at my computer and I'm busy trying to get this bug out of this program and I'm really totally, you know, it's like, wow, it's not going really well. And now I'm walking down that hallway and I'm still inside my computer. If I could just get out of my computer and be aware I'm walking down the hallway, that would be a really big improvement. So at first, maybe it's just you know that you're walking down the hallway. That's as far as you can get to let go of, you know, that discussion you were just having or that YouTube video you were just viewing on company time or, you know, whatever, right? So, and just be present with the walking down the hallway. When you get good at knowing you're walking down the hallway, then yes, you can pick up and start noticing more things, noticing the pressure of what it feels like with your steps or how your arms are swinging or any of the other stuff. But for me... Yeah, it's a challenge to let go of whatever I was caught up in and be completely present with just simply walking down the hallway. I, I don't succeed real often. This sort of leads to the second concern for me when I is I have a kind of a so what response. It's like, OK, I, if I if I work on um, there's a side of me that wants some kind of reward for this. I guess is what it is, <laughs> and that you know, if I spend a lot of time and I and I and I take the effort to be mindful, I guess maybe I haven't had enough mindful experiences to know that there is an intrinsic reward. So I guess I want you to verify yes, there is. <laughs> yes, there is, but it comes really slowly. We live in a culture of instant gratification. You know, if it takes more than three months, 
that's completely off the radar screen in this culture. Right? Growth on the spiritual path, the Dalai Lama said, should be measured in five-year increments. Right? So you're going to have to walk down that hallway mindfully for five years to see the benefit of it. Right? Um, and, you know, if you just get lazy and decide after three months it's not working, and then you, you don't see the benefit. So, yeah, part of, one of the things that's required on the spiritual faith is sadhana, which is translated as faith, but might better be translated as confidence. Confidence that this guy, 2,500 years ago, actually did discover things that were useful to do to help with your spiritual growth. And you're going to try them out. And you're going to give them a good shot. And given the fact that you don't get the three-month instant reward or the 30-minute instant reward or the three-second instant reward, you're going to have to try it out for a long time to see if it works. So, yeah, it's going to take some of that confidence in the path, faith that, yeah, this guy knew what he was talking about and try it out and see what happens. I appreciate you saying that um, because one and one of the things that I do with that when I'm not necessarily feeling a reward, um, the only thing that keeps me going is to say, well, it's not like I'd be doing something else that's better. Like Mm -hmm. I can walk down the hall and be aware for the rest of my life. And if there's no benefit from it, there's really no detriment either. Right. So that's how I keep myself going when I'm not feeling very full of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look what the culture suggests, right? Walk down the hall, eat some food, drink something, you know, whatever it takes to get you to spend some money, right? And when you're sitting at home alone, obviously you need to be sitting in a bigger, in front of a bigger TV, right? You know, your 50-inch TV, that's so old now. How come you don't have an 80-inch TV, right? I mean, this is what the culture is offering, and, you know, I don't think any of you were into that or you wouldn't be here today. So you realize that the culture is not offering the useful stuff. I mean, what else are you going to do with your life besides investigate this stuff and see where it takes you? This, this seems to be much more promising than a faster car. I think for me, an instant benefit that comes from me being mindful in a particular activity is it allows me to let go of that other thing Mm -hmm. that was dominating or kind of that compulsion to continue with whatever stream of thought was going on. Right. And that's an immediate relief to me Mm -hmm. for benefit that I see. Yeah. It, it definitely can be very, very helpful. I'm, I couldn't tell you the number of hundreds or thousands of times I'm working on some problem and I can't find the solution. And I get up and I walk away from it and, you know, let it go. And, poop, there's the solution. So that dropping into the mindfulness like that, 
it lets go of whatever you were hooked on, and yet it keeps your mind in a place where, churning away in the background, you can come up with that solution or whatever needs to be done with it. It's not that you, if you're mindful, you haven't put your mind into something else that's going to absorb you 100%, right? You're just there with what's going on. Your mind gets a break, and who knows what will pop up. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, you me- <clears throat> you mentioned you know your mind churning on the on the solution, and I've noticed that my mind when, when I'm really trying to come up with something, sometimes it's just I'm more concentrated on not finding the solution, and I'm not finding the solution. I'm not finding the solution, and as soon as I take a break from it, then I allow that space to you know, that solution to come. Right. Yeah, that can be very very helpful. Yeah. Okay, why don't we take a break? Uh, I'll ring the bell in about 10 minutes. There's three restrooms in the back. There's another one up the stairs. Be careful going up and down the stairs. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to do a long guided meditation. So you're going to be sitting for a while. So I suggest you actually do get up and move around.